electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. One more question. Do we need a central counterparty for the clearing of treasuries? Interesting question, and that's that's a proposal. We're doing a lot of uh, thinking these days, along with colleagues from other agencies, about the structure of the Treasury market, given what happened at, during the acute phase of the pandemic when there was so much selling pressure and there wasn't the capacity to handle it. And one way to do that would be to have central clearing. It's, um, it certainly has benefits, and I've been a big fan of central clearing in other parts of the economy. It's something that, that we're looking at. Uh, I don't know that it'll wind up um, being part of the solution, but it's certainly worth looking into. So, Again, another very interesting uh, analysis and question. Well, thank you. Uh, Senator Sinema, who previously spoke, and I have founded a Financial Innovations Caucus uh, in the Senate. And these are some of the things that we want to explore, plus many other things. So we will look forward to uh, addressing some of these questions through the Financial Innovations Caucus. Uh, and through this committee. So thank you so much, Chairman Powell, for uh, being with us today and for your insights. I yield back. Thank you, Senator Lemon. Senator Ossoff from Georgia, you're recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Chairman Powell, for joining us this morning and this afternoon and for the discussion that we had several days ago. Chairman Powell, it may not be widely known that the Fed's Retail Payment Office, or RPO, is based in Atlanta, and the RPO uh, is responsible for most transactions involving Americans' checking accounts, ACH transactions, direct debit. This is critical financial infrastructure vital to the functioning of our economy. Do you have concerns? that cybersecurity threats to the RPO uh, could pose a systemic risk to the U.S. economy? And will you commit to working with my office to review the cybersecurity of the Atlanta-based RPO and to improve it if necessary? I would agree with you that those are very important issues. Uh, I do think that uh, the Atlanta Fed is very, very focused on those issues, but would be, uh, of course, delighted to work with your office in, in that respect. Thank you so much. There is no doubt, Chairman Powell, that the COVID-19 pandemic is the most significant drag on economic growth and job creation. But could you step back, please, and comment on what you assess to be the most significant systemic threats to global or national financial stability? Well, I, you know, clearly uh, bringing the pandemic to an end in the United States and globally, a, a real decisive end would would take so much risk to the financial system and to the economy and to the people we serve off the table. So you really can't overestimate the importance of getting that done quickly. And we can do it. Just remember, we haven't done it yet, but we really can do it as a country. Uh, and it has to happen all around the world or we'll keep getting, you know, we'll keep getting uh, echoes of this, in, you know, possibly next winter. But this is where we don't want to be. We want to get this done and have it decisive. You know, beyond that, I think uh, the advanced economies uh, 
have issues around around growth, um, around an aging population, and uh, low interest rates, low, low inflation, low growth, low productivity world. But we, the United States, to a lesser extent than many other advanced economies. But those are issues that that we face uh, that threaten different kinds of stability. Those are big, big issues um, that we think about, and we have to address to some extent with our policies. So I could go on. Thank you, Chairman Powell. Appreciate that. And, and recognizing that you're, as a matter of policy, not commenting on the specific fiscal measures that Congress is considering, can can you please guide us through what your thinking would be if Congress were to engage in more ambitious fiscal expansion with more significant or more sustained fiscal support for low or middle income households without commenting on any specific legislation? How might that change the Fed's policy outlook? Well, we take so we take fiscal policy in, into account. It's completely uh, we take it as a given, whatever fiscal policy is. Um, and it, that's it's one of many, many factors that that will affect the path of the economy. We, we are focused entirely on the state of the economy and the path to maximum employment and price stability. That's our focus. Anything that affects that can affect our, uh, you know, what we see, but we'll be looking at the actual data in our forecasts. We won't be reacting to specific policies, if that's what you mean. I, again, I would say over the, over the longer term. Chairman Powell, you, you've acknowledged the extreme difficulty of economic conditions for low income and low wealth households in this hearing. Which provides more direct economic relief to low income households who may not own stocks or hold mortgages or run businesses? Direct fiscal relief or monetary expansion whose effects are mediated by money markets and the banking system? Well, I would just say, again, without commenting on a, on a particular uh, bill, uh, fiscal policy, if, if we're talking about targeting specific groups within society for support, that is the work of fiscal policy. Monetary policy is it is really not designed to do that. That's right. So if trying to relieve the suffering of people who are in economically precarious situations in their household, who, again, don't own stocks, don't own businesses, don't have mortgages, um, direct fiscal relief will be a more effective means of relieving their suffering than the broader macroeconomic intervention of the Fed through monetary policy. Is that a correct paraphrasing of your statement? Yes, and, and that's really been the story of this of this uh, recovery. It's fiscal policy has really stepped up and and done that. We've done what we can too, but um, fiscal policy. Okay, I've got just twenty seconds. Chairman, I want to return to systemic risk. The provision of massive liquidity to the financial system, not just since COVID, but since the 07-08 crisis, risks the emergence, as the ranking member noted, of asset bubbles that could pose a systemic risk to the banking system. Do you believe that we have sufficient surveillance and risk management capacity right now to identify those risks before they threaten financial stability? I do. We, we monitor financial markets very carefully, and so do many others. It's not its not a question of uh, lack of monitoring capacity. Okay, thank you so much, Chairman Powell. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Ossoff. Uh, Senator Daines from, uh, I think, so just Senator Daines from uh, Montana is recognized. Or perhaps not here. Senator Kramer from North Dakota has not spoken yet. He had checked in earlier. Is he here? Uh, Senator Warnock from Georgia is recognized. 
understand people are people are voting. Yeah, let me um, let me ask um, one question. I wanted to ask. Uh, hang on a second. I apologize. I wanted to ask the, the chairman a question about climate. Uh, and uh, we had I, I mentioned I will do this question in writing. I'd rather obviously do it now while we're waiting and I won't keep you long if the other members don't show up um, in the the um, we know that low and moderate income communities and black and brown communities suffer the effects of climate change disproportionately uh, when a hurricane hits and, and always have suffered weather weather disasters. Um, way out of proportion to their numbers. When a hurricane hits, when wildlife, when wildfires ravage entire town or regions, entire spring planting washes down the Mississippi, local residents need government agencies to be agile and flexible in response. What policy changes, Mr. Chair, will the Fed implement to promote consumer protection and community development and do things like ensuring access to cash or other means of payment when these more frequent extreme weather events devastated, devastate already distressed communities or whole regions. Are you are you coordinating on this with the Federal Reserve banks among the 12 banks? Yes, so that's um, a good example really of the way uh, to the extent climate change you know, leads to increased episodes of severe weather. Uh, we need uh, the banking institutions that we supervise to be in a position to perform really critical functions in the aftermath of those, of those events. You see that. Uh, the, by the way, the Federal Reserve System itself, our, our reserve banks, get the cash. They, they take the actual physical cash and get it to those affected areas. And it's, it's uh, something they do very well. And we need to be resilient and, and available to do that and, and able to do that, rather. And then we need the banks to be able to, to perform the function that they perform with their ATMs and their branches to get that cash out to people who may be in pretty dire circumstances in the wake of a natural disaster. Senator Daines uh, from Montana is recognized for five minutes. All right. Uh, thanks, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Chairman Powell, it's good to have you here. Um, I just was looking at the, um, the T-bill chart and uh, noticing since the 1st of February, uh, the one-month rates have, have dropped in half from 0 0.06 uh, to today, 0 0.03. Two months went from 0 0.07 to 0 0.02. We're starting to get into that realm here of possibly uh, negative rates, which we saw, of course, briefly uh, a year ago, March. Um, just want to get your thoughts on that. Is there, is there any issues here of short of collateral? What, what's, what's, what's driving this as you're watching some of these short-term rates approaching zero? So with T-bills in particular, it, it's this would really be a treasury issue, but uh, I would say you know, it's a lot of demand for, or, you know, for short term. There's a lot of liquidity and people want to store it to some extent in, in uh, T-bills and there's demand and therefore that drives down the, the, the rates that people are uh, are being paid or receiving for buying those assets. You know, from, from our standpoint, we control uh, our policy rate is the federal funds rate. And to the extent there were to be downward pressure on that because of, for example, the Treasury General account, uh, shrinking in size, then we have we have tools in which we tools that we can use to, um, you know, to keep that rate in the policy uh, in, in our intended policy range. And uh, we will do that. And that that should that should also, you know, limit the extent to which other money market instruments like T-bills would would go even lower or perhaps negative. 
So do you have a do you have a concern? I mean, we, I think many of us were surprised we saw negative rates here a year ago. Is that is it? I mean, is, these rates are are getting awfully low in the short term. Is that is it a concern of yours or then or not? Well, our, again, our principal concern is that the federal funds rate be, be in its in its intended uh, uh, range. It's yeah, the yeah. range intended by the Federal Open Market Committee. Um, we also, do, we, you know, we do see that there's the possibility that uh, that other money market rates could move down. And I think to the extent we're able to keep the, uh, the federal funds rate in its range, that should ameliorate some of that downward pressure. And, and that would be appropriate. Kind of follow up on that same point, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we have seen a lot of volatility, for example, in the Texas gas markets that to a degree spread out to other markets. Um, if there were several of these other kind of special circumstances all happening at the same time, uh, might this lead to a shortage of collateral on former T-bills, uh, as seemed to be in the case that we saw here uh, last March? Um, it's possible. I, I, I don't really I don't really see that happening, but it, it's true that there's tremendous demand. And um, again, the, the, the issue of, of supplying the demand across the curve is really one for the issuer, which is which is Treasury. Um, is there any merit or might it be a good idea to waive the supplementary leverage ratio for, say, a year until some of these special circumstances we're seeing regarding the recovery uh, from the pandemic in the past and, and when perhaps we'll have less possible need for some of the dealer intermediation in the repo market and some of the other short-term markets? As you I'm sure no. The uh, temporary relief that we granted regarding the SLR expires at the end of March, and right. we're right in the middle of uh, of thinking about what to do about that. We I haven't got any any uh, news for you on that today, we, but we do we do expect to make a decision on what to do about that um, uh, exemption that that change we made to the SLR back last year. Um, shift gears and looking at some of the prospects of these asset bubbles. You know, we're seeing signs of speculation across various portions of the economy. Stocks, of course, trading at very high prices uh, to earnings ratios. Uh, ag commodities moving up. Uh, economically sensitive materials such as copper, nickel, they're soaring. Bitcoin's up 80% this year alone. Um, Mr. Chairman, uh, how do we know when, uh, I guess to quote, uh, I think it was Mr. Greenspan, talked about irrational exuberance has unduly escalated asset values, which then might become subject to unexpected and perhaps prolonged contractions. You know, so as we look at those um, uh, those things that you cited, what many of them have in common is that they're related to expectations of and, and greater confidence in a stronger recovery. So that's the metals. It's not so much Bitcoin, but it's the, it's the metals that you mentioned and inflation expectations and, and uh, other securities. Prices are really related to... Um, you know, because of all the factors that are that are out there right now, an expectation that the that the uh, recovery is going to be stronger, sooner, and more complete, and so that's okay. Um, you know, we, we saw uh, um, you know commodity prices moved up a lot in two thousand eight and nine, and uh, people were worried about inflation. The inflation never came, so it's a healthy sign, I think. There, um, you know, we're focused honestly. We're focused on making sure that we're. We're providing the support that the economy needs to get back to maximum employment and stable prices. We've still got 10 million people fewer working now, according to the payroll statistics. 
And it's much worse than that in uh, among the, the workers in the lower quartile. So that's really our focus. Um, our focus in financial stability generally has been to have you know, a banking system and financial sector that is highly resilient to shocks. Uh, and uh, going to change the order of this. All right, uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm over my time at the moment. So uh, thank you. You'll back. Thank you, Senator Daines. Uh, Senator, Senator Warnock from Georgia is recognized for five minutes. Senator Warnock. Thank you so very much, Chairman Brown. And I look forward to working with you and also with ranking member uh, Toomey and other members of this committee. Uh, I'm grateful to Chairman Powell. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to me two weeks ago. I look forward to working with you um, as we uh, work on a recovery for uh, that embraces our whole country and especially look forward to working uh, with you and Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic uh, to help Georgians over uh, the next two years. Some have suggested uh, that our COVID-19 challenges with unemployment, with homelessness and poverty will be solved if we simply lift up, lift all local restrictions and open up the economy. Uh, but since the beginning of this crisis, uh, I've heard you stress time and time again, um, and something along this order, even today, as you offered your testimony, uh, that the path of the economy, you said on one occasion, continues to depend significantly on the course of the virus. Would you uh, mind elaborating on why this is the case? Will the economy fully recover if people don't feel safe and comfortable that the virus is contained? I would answer your question in the, in the negative. <clears throat> it would not. Uh, we know that um, actually at the beginning of the pandemic, if you look at the, the, the plummeting levels of travel and going to restaurants through open table, all that all that data, it shows that people stopped doing those things um, because of the coronavirus before there were governmental restrictions at the state and local level to to, to do it to do those things. So. It really is, to a significant extent, just people wanting to avoid catching, you know, the, the coronavirus. It's also the, you know, the uh, restrictions that are in place in some cases on the part of governments. We don't, we don't, it's not a role for us to uh, express views on whether they should be lifted or not. That's really something for state and local governments. But, you know, clearly, the, if you look at the, where the, the 10 million people who are out of work, <clears throat> a great number of them are in those sectors of the economy that have been so badly affected by COVID. And those are the ones where you gather closely and where people are still, not every person, but many people are still reluctant to go to indoor restaurants, for example. And you see sporting events, they're not, they're not having crowds. So it's, those are the, the people who worked in those areas. Those are the ones who were, who were affected. And, and it's gonna be hard for them to go back to work until people are confident, as you say. So, so we we want the economy to fully recover, but we've got to get the virus under control, and those things work together. Um, which is why I'm glad to see 20 billion dollars in the uh, vaccine rollout funds in the COVID-19 uh, stimulus package, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that we get uh, those funds approved and out the door. 
so that we can reopen and do so safely uh, and permanently. Um, you're also tasked, uh, well, you're tasked primarily with looking at the whole economy and with the big picture and guiding our country forward. And one of the things that you have to look at as you do that uh, is systemic risks. Um, you and the other uh, governors uh, over the Fed board have to ask, well, what risks are systemic? And in that regard, I'm curious, how broad is your definition of systemic risk? Uh, my definition of systemic risk includes the cycle of poverty. Uh, it includes things like disparities in wages that mean women make less than men. Uh, people of color uh, make less than their white sisters and brothers. Uh, it includes food insecurity, housing insecurity, lack of access to health care. These things feed a cycle that limits opportunity limits upward mobility uh, and people's ability to reach their full potential, which then has implications for the whole economy. How do you factor these kinds of things in um, as you take stock of whether the economy is working or not and for whom is the economy working? So you've heard us uh, increasingly in recent years um, talking about these longer run disparities and you know why do we feel that we can do that? It is because they weigh on the they weigh on the economy in the sense that if not everyone has the uh, the ability the opportunity to participate in the economy and contribute as much as that person can contribute, given his or her talents and abilities and and willingness to work and all those different things, then the economy is going to be less than it can be. And and in our country, of course, and and. Every country faces challenges. You know, we're not alone in this, but we do face persistent, very persistent uh, uh, differentials that are hard to account for and that weigh on the economy. And those are along racial lines, along gender lines and and other lines. Uh, and uh, I, I just think it's um, I would say it's uh, it's widely understood now that we need to do everything we can to bring people into the economy and, and uh, let them contribute and and uh, and let them share in the in the broader prosperity. Thank you, Chairman Powell. Uh, it's it's clear that the bottom line is that poverty, systemic uh, inequality, wealth inequality, are risks to the entire economy, and uh, have implications for all of us. That these issues cannot be siloed, which is why we've got to take this into consideration as we push forward uh, COVID relief and then pivot to address longstanding issues of, of uh, wealth inequality in our country. Thank you so very much. Uh, thank you, Senator Warnock. Uh, for senators who wish to submit questions for the record, these questions are due one week from today, Tuesday, March 2nd. Chair Powell, based on a change we made to our committee rules bipartisanly, you have 45 days to respond to any questions. Uh, I appreciated the dose of reality we heard from Chair Powell today, 10 million fewer jobs were only creating 29,000 new jobs a month. That's unacceptable. As you said, Mr. Chairman, when it comes to our recovery, the job is not done. Talk to any mother or essential worker or mayor. Talk to the people who own barbershops and diners and dry cleaners. Everything is not fine. Uh, much of what we heard from my Republican colleagues today sounds pretty out of touch with the reality that the great majority of American families are living in. It's the same, the same message we heard all last summer, last fall. The stock market's up. Everything is fine. We heard it again today. 
certainly the wealthiest sliver of Americans are doing just fine, just like they were before the pandemic. But our job isn't to work for them, it's to work for everyone, as you and I have discussed, Chair Powell. The Fed has multiple tools to increase employment, fight wealth inequality, create an economy that, that Senator Warnock just spoke about that works for the vast majority of people who get their income from a paycheck, not an investment portfolio. You, Mr. Chair, have a responsibility to use all of those tools towards that goal. I continue and to look forward to continuing work with you to do all of that. Uh, with that, the hearing is adjourned. Thank you so much. Thank you. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Our breaking news coverage continues now. That was Fed Chair Jerome Powell testifying on the economy before the Senate Banking Committee. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Good to see everybody. The appearance today coming as stocks in particular, high growth and high multiple technology stocks have been falling sharply yet again today. Big names, all the tried and true names throughout the tech spectrum falling. Apple, among others, and the fangs. Tesla, for example, is down 15 percent in about a week. We're going to kick all of it around with our investment committee. By my side yet again today, Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal. Pete Najarian is here along with Megan Shu. She, the head of investment strategy at the Wilmington Trust. We do want to begin, though, with Steve Leisman. He's going to distill what the Fed chairman had to say today. And I think the bottom line, Steve, is this was about... Um, uh, stay the course, dovish, don't worry about a taper as the Fed chair could possibly be if that's what you were looking for. I think that's a good way to put it, Scott. Uh, for sure, uh, Powell addressed the uh, two major issues that we're debating almost every hour on CNBC, the issue of inflation and the issue of higher yields. And he definitely sounded like somebody who is not concerned about the inflation dynamic that's coming. Let's hear what he had to say. We've averaged less than 2% inflation for more than the last 25 years. Inflation dynamics do change over time, but they don't change on a dime. And so we don't really think how, see how a burst of, of, uh, of fiscal support or, or spending uh, that's not, that doesn't last for many years would actually change those inflation dynamics. Now, of course, the Fed sees inflation uh, coming up or going up in the next a uh, couple of months, but doesn't see it as temporary, sees it as temporary and not as persistent. Finally, on the issue of yields, he says, you got to ask why they're going up and he's not concerned. 
we look at the, at the whole range of financial conditions. And, and it's, it's very important to, to ask why are rates moving up? And so if you look at why they're moving up, it's, it's to do with expectations of a return to more normal levels, more mandate consistent levels of inflation, higher growth and opening economy. In a way, it's a statement of confidence on the part of markets that we will have a robust and ultimately complete recovery. So uh, th- those are the reasons that are that are behind it. Scott, you, you, Chairman, really not flinching. He's feeling, I think, the pressure of what's going on in markets right now, seeing the 10-year yield rise, uh, hearing the talk about inflation, but he's not flinching when it comes to his plans to keep policy pretty much as it is now for the next at least several months. You, you feel as though he all but shut the door, Steve, on, on this idea or even a fear if there is one even in in small quarters of the market of of a taper i mean he used the words and i thought this was among the most powerful things he said today in terms of market direction quote the bond buying program will continue at least at the current pace now i'll remind you steve that the market was down pretty sharply heading into this testimony the nasdaq at one point had dipped by 500 points it was a three and a half percent decline We've halved those losses. So it seems as though the market was at least comforted in some respects by what the Fed chairman had to say. And maybe that was part of it, what I read to you. Yeah, and we've been reporting for several weeks now that the Fed is very much holding the line and and not uh, really responding to what's going on relative to markets for now. You're right, Scott. Uh, they, they have this phrase that they that they use in order to uh, uh, say when they'll be changing the bond purchase at substantial further progress. And he's saying we're quite a ways from substantial further progress. Uh, you might say inflation. Fed chairman is going to say we're short 10 million jobs. You might say high bond yields. Fed chairman is going to say we're short 10 million jobs. And he's concerned that people won't have a place to go back to work. Uh, and that's really the focus of the Fed is the underperformance of the economy, not the potential or the concern about it overperforming. Yeah, did say inflation still well below the Fed's 2% target as well. Steve, thank you. Yeah. It's good to hear from you after we, uh, we hear from the Fed chair today. Let's kick this around, guys. You know, Josh, what are we to make? of what we've been witnessing with with technology. Biggest two-day decline since September. You've got, you know, the Nasdaq about 6% below its high. You've got below its 50-day moving average for the first time since November. I could go through a list of the big-name stocks that are down sharply over the last week. What do we do? I just think you're in this situation where a lot of people got onto one side of the boat, and I think we have a lot of different trades that all at once are really one big trade. And I've written about this extensively on the blog over the last couple of weeks. It looks more prescient than it really was. Um, But I'm just trying to understand why people have a portfolio right now that's 100% oriented all toward this same concept where there's never going to be a risk-free rate of return again. And therefore, you don't have to worry about current cash flows. You don't have to worry about current earnings. All you have to worry about is the eventual total addressable market, the market share that you attain and turning on the profit spigot at some point five years from now, 10 years from now. That worked last year when the Fed took rates to zero, but we have an economy that's growing and we have people going back to work and we have people that are vaccinated and or immune and uh, they're back in the real economy. And when you look at the hotel stocks, when you look at um, the entertainment companies, the airlines, you see that uh, people are recognizing that. So then they say to themselves, well, it's unlikely will be at 0% interest rates forever, regardless of what the Fed says. So then you see a little bit of vigilantism. But, I mean, a 10-year at 1.3%, 
I was looking at I was looking at uh, I was looking at 2013. The rate on the 10-year doubled that year. We started the year at 1.7, uh, went to 3 percent, and the stock market still went up 30 percent. So I don't think it's really a threat to stocks. I think it's normal. I think it's natural that there is some interest rate attached to treasuries. And one last thing I want to say here, this is a question of portfolio construction. Do you want to get rich now or do you want to stay rich forever? If you want to stay rich forever, you're not all in those, those technology, you know, TAM trades. You have a mix of stocks. The Dow is in a 1.1% drawdown. So if you're in distress right now in your portfolio, you have a very serious portfolio construction problem. Right. ARC right. is down 20%. It, it, it okay? underscores. Not the Dow. Not, the S&P is down three. It, it underscores, I think it was the title of Kramer's last book, Get Rich Carefully, or at least one of his books. I mean, it, it speaks to the, the kind of environment we're in. So, Pete, you, you sold Airbnb stock, okay? Um, yep. You've got names like, and I said I could go down the list of some of these names, just because a lot of people are invested in these high-growth technology names, um, internet-related names, whether they're fangs or otherwise, that have really suffered over the last week alone. Apple's down 7.5%. You've got, you know, Netflix is down 35 Facebook's down. But then you have the Kathy Woodstocks, I'll, I'll call them, through ARK and her funds, mm. which a lot of people, especially younger investors, have piled into because she has been investing in all of the hottest and tried and true names, the Zooms, the DocuSigns, the Shopify's, the Spotify's. Her funds, the Innovation Fund, is down 10.5% in one week. The Next Generation Internet Fund is down almost 10% in a week. The FinTech Innovation Fund is down 8.5%. So what are we telling people, our viewers, who are in these names now and maybe have too high of a concentration in them and are wondering what to do? Well, and I think that you just hit it on the, uh, the nail on the head, Scott, when you talked about this concentration, because that is the issue. It's OK to have some of these stocks in your portfolio, whether you're using them as trading mechanisms or you're, or you're actually trying to invest in companies. But I think the, the clear thing that, that stands out for me still, Scott, is when I look at a lot of these various names, you're talking about names that have no valuation or extremely high valuations. I mean, there are so many names that are on these lists that have no P.E. And when are they going to finally have any kind of earnings? And I think that's something that people have to really self-examine. Do they want that much risk? Because that is an incredible amount of risk. And these are the kinds of sharp moves that you're going to get when you've got that kind of risk on. So it's all about how you want your portfolio and how much risk you think and your tolerance levels. Because quite frankly, Scott, you mentioned Airbnb. I was lucky enough to get that on the IPO. I've owned it ever since. I've sold calls against it ever since. It came to a point in time where I looked at that particular stock and I said, you know what? This is still years away. It's been a great run. Adios. If I miss the next however many points to the upside, that's okay. I tend not to look at stocks after I've sold them, so it makes it a little bit easier. But quite frankly, uh, I, I think there are so many names right now on the lists for everybody that are names that do not have earnings, or if they do, they're absolutely in the stratosphere, and they better reexamine that because who knows, Scott? I mean, is this sort of the beginning of a pullback, a serious pullback? I don't know the answer to that, but we were down 500 points on the NASDAQ earlier today. It sure felt like we were sort of in the midst of something, especially given how we started off on Monday. Yeah. So, Megan, you know, you've got a lot of the tech stocks pulling back. And then, as, as Josh rightly said earlier, you do have a lot of the get back, get your life back stocks, 
going up and, and going up sharply. Month to date, MGM is up 36 percent. Las Vegas Sands, Wynn Resorts, these casino stocks are moving higher. The cruise ships are moving higher. The Live Nations of the world, which Josh has talked about on this program, MSG, have been moving higher. You're a macro person. You know, you don't talk individual names, but you certainly need to be positioned in the right places for your funds. So where are you? Yeah, well, I think what we're seeing in the stock market in terms of the rotation, uh, as well as what's happening in the bond market and, and the interest rate market, is really a realization that the global economy is on the cusp of a very important transition. We see, <clears throat> excuse me, COVID cases coming down very rapidly, hospitalizations coming down rapidly. There's a tremendous amount of pent up consumer demand, pent up cash on corporate balance sheets. All of that has to go somewhere. And we really think that this is the beginning of a transition from a focus on your stay at home, uh, you know, purchases of online goods toward deploying capital into a lot of other parts of the market. Last year's stock market run was not a healthy market. What we see happening today is a broadening of leadership, a broadening into those areas of the market that really represent better economic health. Um, and so for our part, we are eyeing, I totally agree with Josh, you have to be diversified. I don't think this is a get to one side of the boat, get to the other side of the boat type of market. Be in both high growth tech related names. For, for us, we're neutral to technology. We have an overweight in financials, energy, industrials, all of these areas that could really um, utilize the operational leverage and an improving economy. One of the issues, though, Josh, is to, to Megan's point, um, playing off the sides of the boat. You had a lot of people on one side of the boat. And if a lot of people move to the other side of the boat at once, you're off sides. You're, you're overweight on that side. Jimmy Labenthal, I'll get to you in a second, but I just want Josh to come back on this. You have a potential issue in, in the NASDAQ in these technology names. I'm, I'm just thinking about somebody like Kathy Wood. Um, you know, if she makes considerable moves in the stocks that she has because they're so heavily concentrated in these areas, you know, some of her positions are very large. Uh, you could have continued weakness on one side of the boat. That's not going to feel very good. Look, there's a very specific subset of investors right now who are absolutely losing their minds. And it's not it's not all their fault. A lot of this is behavioral stuff. They've been thrown into an environment where the riskier the stock they've bought, the more it's gone up. They've been relentlessly rewarded in the succession of trades where the harder it is to explain the company to someone, the more assured your profits are. And in fact, that wasn't enough. So this is the point where, OK, we had a few drinks. Now, now let's let's uh, take things up a notch. Let's start doing shots. So now you see them speculating in things like holograms of Zion Williamson and, uh, and, and all manner of coins, things they heard of that morning, throw 20,000 in. I think a lot of what's happened here is you just have people who have made obscene amounts of money, who are fairly inexperienced and not really in control of um, their, their faculties at this point. It's estimated that 100,000 people have more than a million dollars worth of Bitcoin uh, right now. And almost 10,000 people have more than $10 million worth of Bitcoin. That's where a lot of this money's coming from. That's, so that's, when you see 
this level of concentration, it's all the same stocks, and it's this confluence of things where they wake up in the morning, they go on Clubhouse, they spend 90 minutes convincing each other to buy the most insane things, they get off Clubhouse, go on Substack, jot out a letter, tell their subscribers, their subscribers are all selling them coins. It's the same money, and it's almost like they're in a race to lose it. So when you see the stocks in ARK, they're all great companies. Huge innovation. Kathy Wood is amazing. Mm -hmm. This is not a diss on her. No. She's made multiples on that money. But you're going to have days like this because it's all the same people crowded into all the same trades. That's my point. And again, the underlying premise is 0% interest rates and a dollar and a treasury bill with no yield. And when that changes, people have to rethink some of this stuff. Jim Labenthal, you know, I'm looking through, and thanks to John Spallanzani for sort of, you know, putting this all together uh, for in, in an email, the five-day drawdowns through the ARC ETFs. And I just bring it up because, again, these are the names that people own. The Roku's down 13% in five days. CrowdStrike, Josh name, down 13. PayPal, widely talked about stock on this program and elsewhere. Peloton's down 18%. I mentioned Zoom down 17 you could go down the list. I, I could keep going. The, the point is clear, though. What's your take on that? So those stocks that you've named, uh, and whether we call them innovation stocks, Kathy Wood stocks, they were very, very, very expensive stocks. And now they're just very, very expensive stocks. It's still not a space that I want to play in. But what I find more intriguing, Scotty, and you led the, the intro with this, are the apples of the world, okay, the fangs of the world, because they were expensive and now they've become, I think, um, rationally priced. And this all has to do with interest rates, if you ask me. If you think about the math that's involved with a multiple, it's basically you take the 10-year rate, you put the equity risk premium on top of that, you invert it, and you get the multiple. Equity risk premium hasn't changed. It's about 250 basis points. But when the 10-year went from 1% to 1.5%, the math involved took you from a 30 times forward multiple on Apple to about 26, which is where it is today. That's right where it should be. So we have gotten the interest rate rise catalyst that has corrected the FANG stocks. And I, I mentioned Apple. You could take a look at Google, which is 25 times forward earnings. You could take a look at Facebook, which is 19 times forward earnings. At a 1.5% interest, 10-year uh, treasury, those are attractively priced. The problem, though, becomes what if we go shooting through 1.5% and head to 2%? Well, then those multiples have to come down further. And I think that's where the Fed has to, you have to wonder, will the Fed at some point act, whether it's one and a half, two percent to keep interest rates low? The answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But where we are right now, the FANG stocks are attractively priced. Yeah, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk much more about the market, some of the other moves being made today from our committee members. We'll do that next. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here's what's happening at this hour. Flags atop the White House are flying at half-staff today. That's in remembrance of the more than half a million American lives lost to COVID-19. President Biden has ordered flags lowered on all federal properties through sunset on Friday. And President Biden and the First Lady will travel to Houston on Friday, where residents, of course, have been experiencing mass power outages and a clean water crisis amidst the lowest temperatures there in decades. Former Capitol security officials who were in charge of the Capitol during the January 6th insurrection are blaming bad intelligence for the violent mob. The congressional hearing is the first time that lawmakers are hearing directly from those in charge of their security on that day. And so far, those officials are pointing the finger at other federal agencies and also at each other. And Iran says that it welcomes steps by the U.S. to ease tensions. An Iranian government official says that the two countries are on a, quote, constructive path. But of course, after former President Donald Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal in 2018. Now, at the same time, Iranian state TV is reporting that the country is restricting international inspection of its nuclear facilities. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right. Appreciate that, Rahel. Thank you. Um, guys, I want to get back to this this um, this impact on the on the market, specifically the, the Nasdaq, Megan. Here's what I want you to do. Let's listen to what Kathy Wood told us less than a week ago about what would happen if rates continue to rise uh, and a reckoning that could happen throughout some of the stocks that, that she owns. Let's listen. I agree with you, Scott. There will be a valuation reset. There will be fear, I'm sure, and we will use it to our benefit, concentrating our portfolio to our highest conviction names. Uh, but I think longer term, especially given the, the powerful growth trajectories that the five innovation platforms around which we revolve all of our research, uh, that, that those trajectories are so powerful uh, that these multiples, that they, these companies are going to grow into their multiples a lot faster than most uh, investors are now expecting. And so that's a source of confidence for us. Okay, so that's Kathy Wood. So, Megan, maybe the, the biggest takeaway there is, is the word she uses, we will use it to our benefit, suggesting if there is a meaningful pullback through this part of the market, they will buy more of the stocks on, on the pullback. Is that the right move? Well, I think I think that's always the way you should have been thinking about these technology names, which are truly going to be revolutionizing the way we live, work, do business, but over a multiple year time frame. So these technology names are part of a, a multi-year secular growth story. You've got to take a multi-year investment horizon to those. And I think that's what you're hearing from her is that she's going to be taking that long-term approach, reposition in the short term for uh, hopefully longer gains, uh, gains to be had uh, looking out further. But I think as it pertains to rates, you know, it always comes down to two vectors, the level and the speed with which you get there. And the higher you go and the faster you get there, those names with the higher valuations, more growth priced into the future are going to be impacted more to the downside. The, the reason, Josh, this is potentially so important um, and it's so funny and, and however timely, you know, Bob Pisani has a, a new trader talk entitled, Is This the Start of the Kathy Wood Sell-Off? So go to CNBC.com and you can read that as you listen to us discuss this. She, according to Bloomberg, owns 10% or more, Josh, of at least 24 companies. Okay, that is a lot concentrated in a little. 
you know, a lot of the biotech names. She mentioned Invitae on our program. There's CRISPR Therapeutics. You've had a big boom in, in a lot of those stocks. You've had a boom in the kinds of stay at uh, stay at home stocks that we've talked about, driven in part by the tremendous amounts of money through those funds going into those stocks. So what happens if some of that money now pulls pulls out? So there's a couple of things here that I don't think uh, most of the people watching the show understand about money management. And I'm not going to like do a class, but like let me mention a couple of concepts. The first is dollar-weighted returns versus time-weighted returns. Some of the most famous, you know, big trade um, hedge funds in history actually have destroyed more capital than they've earned for investors. And it's not the person running the fund's fault. It's that they raised most of their money from investors after the big trade that made them famous. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen with ARK. I'm just illustrating a concept. So uh, Paulson and Company is a really great example of that. He was barely managing any money during the quote-unquote greatest trade ever, shorting the housing market. Then he went from like being a, a, a billion-dollar merger arbitrage fund that no one ever heard of to a $40 billion fund, and at which point he could not make money, um, like literally almost ever. So uh, a lot more money was lost there than ever made, but the book is still in the library, The Greatest Trade Ever. So now you have a situation where you have an, an actively managed ETF, fabulously successful. She absolutely crushed it. There's no way anyone could take that away from her. Unfortunately, most of the money invested in the fund, I think $26 billion in the flagship ETF, did not come in prior to that massive uh, explosion in gains. Of course, it came in after. So I hope that those fund flows keep coming in, and that way, Kathy Wood can continue to buy her innovation favorite names. But unfortunately, that's not how the money management industry works, because most people allocating to funds, and not just retail, advisors like myself, invest in the rearview mirror. So in fact, uh, if there's a bad month or a bad three-month stretch for these categories, whether we're talking about gene editing or uh, whatever they're doing now, replacing people's heads, these, these funds will have a track record that makes it harder to find new money to come in That's right. and buy these stocks d on dips. Double-edged sword, and now too. You have, when you talk about concentrated position, redemptions, so she has to sell her favorite stocks if she has net redemptions, which I don't know if she will into this fund. The great thing about ARK, though, is that the, you don't have to wait 90 days to find out. You're getting like almost real-time notifications on the buys and sells because of how transparent they are. So I just think these are concepts that people need to understand. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you bring that up. So, Pete, I'm, I'm turning to you now. I, I honestly cannot remember sure. a, another day when you've had <laughs> this many moves to discuss with us. Airbnb, we mentioned and Amex. Sure. And we threw some of these names on the screen yep. in terms of stocks that you've sold. BJ's Wholesale, Bank of New York, mm -hmm. Sleep Number, U.S. Bank Corp and Well Tower. But the number of calls that you sold are astounding. Boeing, yeah. BlackBerry, BP, Carnival, Cleveland Cliffs, sorry, Jim, Semex, Eldorado Gold, <laughs> Ford, Iron Mountain, JetBlue, Michaels, Marathon, Marvell, ArcelorMittal, Oracle, Pitney Bowes, Range Resources, Tanger Factory, Skechers, yeah. Takeda Pharma, Target. What's going on? <laughs> 
It was just uh, it's opportunity, and uh, as we got through expiration, Scott, I mean, a lot of those names were uh, going to be expiring either this past Friday or this coming Friday. If they gave me the move, I'd take it. I mean, we talk about discipline all the time, and I, you were talking at the top of the show about a lot of these different people, new people maybe into the market, and they're involved in the trade. But the problem is they don't understand the concept of when do you sell. You have to have a plan. You go in with the plan, good or bad. So there are some that are obviously not going to work. You've got to sell those at the right time. And there are others that do work. Yeah, you want them to run. But, yes, you have to be disciplined enough to say enough is enough. This has been great. That's, that was kind of the story, quite frankly, with a lot of my stocks. There's nothing wrong with Well Tower. I decided to get out of it, Scott, because from the springtime to now, that has been on an absolute tear to the upside. And it's a health care REIT. So that shouldn't move like a tech stock. It should move more like a REIT. Well, it, it seemed like it was time to take that off. American Express, the great example there was, it was a single-digit PE when I invested in it, and now it's up towards 20 or even a little bit higher than that. So I feel like it's a little bit stretched. I think that's kind of the case with almost everything I was looking at that I decided, you know what, some of these names have to come off. Sleep, sleep number was one, one of the fastest ones to move. I bought that in January. The stock was trading around 9 I had no idea, Scott, I was buying it on fundamentals, but their earnings were absolutely extraordinary, and that's what spiked the stock. And now the PE stretched. I had to get out of that one. Yeah, I got to, and unfortunately, I got to get out and, uh, and, and take a break. Uh, Pete, we already no have problem. a truncated show thanks to the hearing. Um, actually, we'll do the futures outlook now. Uh, the dollar is bouncing off a six-week low. Brian Stutland and Scott Nations have the trades for us there. Uh, Brian, to you first. What, what's the next move in the, in the dollar? Well, the dollar is kind of sitting here right above that 90 level, kind of a little bit back and forth over the last few weeks. But I think when you look at the dollar going backwards a little bit, it's had a bad run. And the reason being is a lot of flow. Remember, the U.S. dollar is tied primarily a lot to the euro and a lot to the yen. Those are two major currencies worth fund flows. The U.S., you know, deficit spending is increasing and it's increasing faster than those other parts of the world. And I think that's having an effect on the dollar and inflation and money getting pulled out of U.S. dollars out of the 10 year note and into those currencies and investing in those infrastructures. So seriously, seriously the, the, the pandemic impact has been bad for the U.S., high GDP, huge, bad, negative impact for them. And that's been a, a, you know, a negative thing for the U.S. dollar. I think it holds in 90, though. I'm not ready to short it here. It's had a bad run lately, but I think that 90 level is held in tight. Let's see what happens. All right, Scotty. Uh, Scott, I'm going to look at the levels for the euro currency futures. Make up about 70% of the dollar index, and they're a lot simpler to trade because you're just talking about one region. So uh, the, the euro currency has rallied. It's gotten into a band and then rallied to a new band. Right now, that's 123 half to the upside, 120 even to the downside. And once we break out of that range, I'm going to jump on. Uh, if it breaks out to the downside, then your target is 116 even. But the, the breakout is the trade, and that's it's, it's a trade to jump on. All right. Good stuff. Guys, thank you. Do it again soon. We'll take a quick break. we got final trades. I'll see if Pete can uh, throw in an unusual as well. We're back after this. All right. We'll do final trades in just a moment. But, Pete, let's do unusual activity first if we could. 
All right, I'll zip through them for you, Scott. So Disney's the first one now. It's hit already four different times so far in the, the month of February. And today they actually are going right at it once again. They're buying the 195 strike calls that expire on Friday. Those are going for between 2 and $3. 6,500 of those traded, Scott. So pretty interesting. Matter of fact, the beginning of the month, stock was 181. So you can get an idea of where the stock is now. It's really on a run to the upside. Secondly, I got Sonos. Now, Sonos, we all talk about it. We know the products, but the stock has been on fire as well. Back in November, we were getting hit after hit after hit. The stock went to the upside. Today's stock was trading about 37.80. They're going all the way out to June. They're buying the June 45 calls, paying about 270 up a little bit more than three dollars for those. About 10,000 of those trading. I'm in both of these trades. December, or excuse me, Disney expires Friday. These other ones from Sonos actually give me a lot of time, so I'll be in those for multiple months. All right, thank you. Give me a quick final too. I'm going to give you a dish. I bought it just during the show. We got some activity in there, so I jumped on that, the calls. Okay. Megan, final trade? We like the industrial sector. Global economic recovery. It's lagged, so it's trading at attractive valuations. Okay. Good to see you again. Farmer Jim? Hey, I think interest rates are going to continue to burble higher here, so play a money center bank like Citigroup. That's an obvious choice. Okay. Josh Brown? I'm with Jimmy. Yield, uh, yield spread between the 10s and 2s is now 1.26%, highest level since Jan 2017. Look at how J.P. Morgan is reacting. That's where I want to be. All right. A Twitter question. What if you're in for the long haul? Microsoft, Apple, J.P. Morgan, CVS, Lynn. Stay? Josh? That's a Twitter question. Oh, I own like half of those. I, I didn't hear them. To be <laughs> All, right. All right, well, I'll do it. We'll <laughs> do it another time. All right, I'll show you the uh, big story today is the uh, the Nasdaq. It's down 342 <laughs> points. That's two and a half percent. That does it for us. We'll do the question tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's halftime report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now. It's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.